Hey, everybody. Host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbV. In each episode, Nora has a real conversation with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they took action to understand this disease. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start Embracing the Journey and learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Hey, everybody. If you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. Hey everybody, we're coming to your town, so you better get ready, put on your best duds, and come out and see us. But first, buy some tickets. That's right. Uh, We are finishing up. These are the last shows of our 2023 tour. We're going to be in Orlando, Florida on August 12th, Mm -hmm. Nashville, Tennessee on September 6th, and wind it all up here in Atlanta on September 9th. Yes, and you can get all the info you need and links to tickets, which are on sale now, at our website, stuffyoushouldknow.com, on our tour page, or you can go to linktree slash S-Y-S-K. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's here too. And this is stuff you should know. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you should have said this uh, COA, and welcome to the podcast. <laughs> right? Because I want to issue a COA on this one. Okay. Uh, this is one of those that is so broad and dense mm-hmm. and awesome. That like I I almost feel bad doing it as a you know forty five ish minute episode of podcast yeah uh, because Afrofuturism is so vast it's like it's hard for sometimes these to not feel like we'll explain what it is and then just like list a bunch of awesome people yeah you know but um this you know this one is of all of our episodes this one is meant to whet the appetite more than most I think as an introduction to what Afrofuturism is. So you can go check out lots and lots of stuff yourself because that's all I've been doing. Yeah, um, we should title it um, Afrofuturism 101. Maybe not even. What's what's below 101? <laughs> 99. <laughs> okay, 99. That won't make I any sense. I can't remember. There's actually a, a number for it. And it's like remedial college courses that you have to take to catch up. Man, I can't remember. But we'll look it up and maybe that'll be that. Yeah, because we will get emails saying, how could you not mention so-and-so? Uh, how could you not mention so-and-so's other thing, even though you mentioned them? Right. Uh, it's just one of those things. There's just too much. But um, hopefully this will just introduce people to this idea and this concept of this cultural uh, aesthetic and philosophy. Yeah, and this is definitely one of those episodes that we should try to define what we're talking about first, which, by the way, we took guff for not – Telling people in depth who Millie Vanilli were, I, I, I was so taken aback by that. Like, what? you know, it just didn't even occur to me that we needed to like go further into defining Millie Vanilli from the outset. 
I know. I thought even our younger listeners, I thought that was such a big cultural thing that, you know, like, I know about things before I was born. Nope. Nope. <laughs> well, this is not Milli Vanilli. This is what we're talking about, Afrofuturism. And Afrofuturism, like you said, it's a huge, big thing that has a lot of different definitions. But um, probably the the most succinct way I can define it, and this is me defining it, mm-hmm. is um, that it is the visions of the future mm-hmm. or fantasy worlds or alternate realities, which all funder, f- fall under the umbrella of speculative fiction or speculative literature. Yeah. Through a African-American lens, right? Yeah. And uh, I'll just drill down a little bit and say that incorporates, uh, obviously, literature, um, but music and uh, dance and uh, every kind of art you can think of, mm-hmm. uh, movies, obviously, and television, um, really kind of anything that has this cool sort of sci-fi bent uh through the lens of African-Americans. And um, we'll get into more definitions because, you know, it's one of those things that people can really pick apart as far as what counts and what doesn't. And then after it's around for a while, like, should we even be calling it this now? And should we call it this? And we'll we'll get into all that. But um, suffice it to say that, like, all of this stuff is just really cool and awesome and serves uh, and has a title because it is serving a, a people that has been underserved when it comes to science fiction. Yeah, so it's kind of evolved in parallel as its own thing, but it it grew out of originally science fiction writing. So when most people think of Afrofuturism, they think of sci-fi novels, essentially. Yeah. Um, but once you start to look into Afrofuturism and start to understand what it is, you see it popping up all over the place. Like it was for right sure. there in plain sight for me, and I never really realized what I was looking at. Yeah. I was just kind of taking all of it as like individual like artistic things rather than a, a part of a collective. So it's yeah. cool to see that there is one giant movement that it's a part of. Um, but like I said, it, it does definitely have its roots in science fiction, which is pretty appropriate because as far as any literary genre goes, science fiction has explored the themes of race and racism and otherness and alienness more than any other, I would say. Yeah, and I have a little stat to uh, sort of drive home my underserved point. Uh, and this was from 2016 in Vox, so it's it's a little dated. And things have gotten better since then, for sure. But uh, 8% uh, at the time, 8% of the top grossing sci-fi films of all time uh, featured black protagonists. Wow. And 4% of those were Will Smith. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, aside from Will Smith, 4% of movies... Uh, and then, of course, if you look at, you know, the big two, Star Trek and Star Wars, uh, you know, the ori- Star Wars got a lot better now, but the original trilogy had one black character, of course, Lando. And then Star Trek, which I know nothing about, and I'm sure things have changed since then as well. Uh, but at the time, I think only had, in all of the Star Trek properties, had, um, it said less than 12 black characters. And I'm not sure what that means. Why did it say 11? Unless one was on the fence? I have no I idea. I don't know. Yeah, that is an odd way to put it for sure. I bet a Trekkie could explain it, though. Um, speaking of, every time I read or, or research about Star Trek, or it just comes up. 
I have to go watch that William Shatner Saturday Night Live appearance from the eighties. <laughs> yeah, get a life. Where he's speaking at a Star Trek <laughs> convention. Uh-huh. It's just priceless every it's single great. time. If you've uh-huh. never seen that, just look up uh, William Shatner Star Trek convention Saturday Night Live, and you won't be disappointed. Yeah, and for our younger listeners, William Shatner is an actor, <laughs> right? From before you were born, and acting. Is where you perform something that you're actually <laughs> oh, no. not on screen, uh-huh. any screen. That's right. So um, that 8% is actually progress compared to the early 20th century. Yeah. Um, and most people don't think that there were any black sci-fi writers, if you think about that kind of thing at all, until the 60s, really, when a guy named Samuel Delaney came along. He's often credited as the first black sci-fi writer. Um, he made a huge splash in the 60s, kind of almost single-handedly taking the genre of sci-fi out of the realm of Martians are invading an Earth outpost right? to let's explore sexual orientation, gender fluidity, race in really like high-handed manner Mm -hmm. um, and was producing books that were over 800 pages long in some cases. Um, But he really moved things along. So not only was he one of the first African-American sci-fi writers – he was one of the first to take sci-fi into much deeper directions. Yeah, for sure. But he's also a guy that when you see interviews with him, and I watched quite a few, super cool guy. Uh, but he's one of the first ones to say, no, no, no. I had people before me. Right. Uh, it just it never became hugely popular, uh, probably for obvious reasons. But uh, there was a, a guy in 1857 uh, named Martin Delaney who was a, a – kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He was a doctor and a journalist and an author and abolitionist. Uh, he wrote a book, a novel called Blake or the Huts of America, uh, which was, as a lot of these are alternate histories mm-hmm. that kind of suppose, like, what would life be like had either slavery not happened or slavery happened in a different way? Or what if, you know, the white people were enslaved and uh, black people were on top? And it's just sort of looking at kind of a lot of things through the lens of the diaspora. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm not into sci-fi books. I never have. But a lot of this stuff, it made me want to read sci-fi for the first time just because it sounds so cool because I love alternate history. Yeah, for sure. And that's definitely a part of speculative fiction, alternate history in general. Um, but, yeah, Martin Delaney's uh, Blake or the Huts of America was written in 1857. And it wasn't until... I mean, I think the another couple decades, things would come out sporadically. But there was a guy named Edward Johnson who wrote um, Light Ahead for the Negro uh, in 1901. And he imagined a, a black man who uh, was transported to a socialist version of the United States in 2006 where things were much, much better. So these these ideas, these alternate histories are kind of coming out little by little, but they are very, very clearly under the what you would call now speculative fiction umbrella. And they were written by African-Americans much, much earlier than Samuel Delaney, long before he was even born. This stuff was happening. It just was happening like almost in a vacuum, like a, a, a black author or a black leader would have a, a, a great idea to get his point across by writing a, an alternate history. And that was it. There wasn't like a genre. There wasn't a movement or anything like that. Yeah, and uh, Delaney also points out that the um, like the the old pulp rags, um, a lot of those were written anonymously, and it kind of was an area of literature where 
people of color, women uh, who you know couldn't get published uh, published as readily at the time, mm-hmm. they could write under these pseudonyms and get their stories out uh, in these pulp magazine uh, articles and stuff and stories. And he's like, you know, who knows how many you know African Americans are writing this kind of stuff. Yeah, because you did the whole thing through the mail. And apparently at the time, you were more likely than not to be using a pseudonym for that stuff because that was just like keeping the electricity on kind of writing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, that's a that's a really great point. Um, but the, the I think the underlying thing here is the reason that there weren't more black authors of sci-fi in part was because it was – just writing in general, literature in general, there was like a general push to keep African-Americans out of things like that as much as possible. And then as, as African-Americans became more and more integrated into American society, um, the thing that kept African-Americans out of sci-fi writing actually came down to one guy who was named John W. Campbell Jr. And it's just slightly hyperbolic to say he was the glass ceiling that that or the gatekeeper that kept sci-fi white for decades. Yeah, he was definitely one of the one of the gatekeepers. Uh, he was an editor of uh, I think back then it was called Astounding Science Fiction. Mm-hmm. It went by a bunch of other names, and now it's around as Analog Science Fiction. In fact, yeah, in fact, yeah, <laughs> I said that with a comma, but in fact, it's a period. <laughs> Actually, there's no period. Uh, but he was, um, the editor. And like you said, he was a guy that, um, you know, he wrote a bunch of essays in the 1960s, uh, that supported segregation. Uh, at one point he called slavery, a a useful educational system. And because of guys like him that were gatekeepers, these stories didn't get through and people like Delaney and Octavia Butler, who we're going to talk about a lot more. Um, she talked about being in school and even her teachers saying things like, you know, Um, unless it's like really necessary for the plot, like you shouldn't have a black protagonist unless it's like for a reason or, you know, if you're going to talk about, um, race, uh, in a way, you know, in science fiction, maybe like make them extraterrestrial instead of black. It's sort of like a metaphor, uh, because it's kind of too heavy for people to, you know, to really take. Right. Octavia Butler wrote a really great essay in 1980 called The Lost Races of Science Fiction. And she took on that um, that excuse for why there wasn't more black people in science fiction works. Um, and she, she zeroed in on Star Wars as an example, the first one. Um, and she said, war? Okay. Planet-wide destruction? Okay. Kidnapping? Okay. But the sight of a minority person? Too heavy. Too real. So she's pointing out that like, there's plenty of real world stuff that you, you could consider pretty horrible yeah. um, that is just fine in science fiction, but race is too distracting. And that was like just kind of the drum that was beaten by guys like John W. Campbell. And the reason why they were so powerful was because at the time, if you wanted to get your novel published, basically the, the most direct route was to have it serialized first in one of those magazines that guys like John W. Campbell edited. Yeah. And then if you keep black authors out of black sci-fi, you also largely keep black readers out of sci-fi too. And just by preventing people like Samuel Delaney from getting his his stories serialized, black sci-fi writers were were basically kept out. And as um, Jeanette Ng, uh, who won Best New Writer of 2019 for science fiction writing, um, 
I can't remember which award. I think it was actually maybe that same award um, from uh, Analog Science Fiction and Fact. Mm -hmm. She said that... It's a weird title for me. It really is. (laughs) She said that John W. Campbell had kept science fiction stale, sterile, male, white, uh, exalting of uh, imperial aspirations, colonialism, settlement, and industrialism. Uh, And she was basically just... I mean, we don't. We're not going to harp on this the whole episode, but there was a huge block in this particular genre, and it was just a handful of people who everybody else went along with. It seems like, for sure. Uh, I think that's a great initial fifteen-minute overview. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, and we'll come back and talk just about the term itself and where it came from right after this. Hey everyone, host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and Abvi. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they take action to understand the disease. That's right. Recognizing how a migraine attack can change the course of your day, she unpacks each guest's journey and how they talk to their doctors to find the treatment plans that are right for them. Yep, along with headache specialist Dr. Christopher Ryan and other special guests, Nora speaks to these incredible people who've channeled their feelings of isolation in their chronic migraine journey into advocacy and art. Plus, there are also eight episodes of their first season available for you to binge. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start, embracing the journey as they learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Hey, everybody, we're here to tell you about Viator, a tool that you can use to plan and book travel experiences around the world. That's right. The Viator app and website make it easy to explore 300,000 plus travel experiences so you can discover what's out there no matter where you're traveling or what you're interested in. Yep. Viator can help you plan better travel experiences. 300,000 plus travel experiences to choose from means you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. That's right. You can also enjoy real traveler reviews to get insider information from people who've already been on the experience that you're considering. Plus, you get free cancellation that helps you plan for the unexpected. Yeah. And Viator offers 24-7 customer service, so you know you'll get support at any hour if things aren't going as planned. So download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find the perfect travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. 
and you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text stuff to 2512-928887, and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. All right, so uh, Afro Futurism. Uh, it's kind of hard to say quickly sometimes. Mm-hmm. It was coined by a white writer named Mark Derry uh, in the early '90s, in 1993, in uh, a piece called "Black to the Future." And in that piece, he interviewed a few uh, writers: Delaney, uh, a music writer named Gregory Tate, and uh, Trisha Rose, who's a sociologist. And basically, it was like the whole point of the essay was why. Are there so few working uh, novelists, uh, African-American novelists working in this genre? Mm-hmm. What happened uh, to get us here? Uh, why aren't there more now? And what can we do about it uh, to change this in the future? And and he was like, especially like science fiction seems especially suited uh, for people of color because, and this is a great quote. He said, in a very real sense, uh, they're the, the descendants of alien abductees. And like, when you think of it like that, it makes a lot of sense that sci-fi would kind of be, you know, uh, something that really fits. Yeah, and he was right. It turned out to be a great fit for um, African-American sci-fi writers. But still, at the time, there were basically four that he could think of, including um, Samuel Delaney and Octavia Butler. Then also a guy named Steve Barnes, who's written basically everything that has anything to do with science fiction. Uh, And then uh, another fantasy author named Charles Saunders, and that was basically it. And this was the mid-90s that this guy was writing this essay and doing these interviews. Um, but he hit it right on the head that, that it is a really great um, basis or springboard for, for uh, black writers to kind of explore the past and the future. Um, but he defined it as a speculative fiction that treats African-American themes and addresses African-American concerns in the context of 20th century technoculture. And basically... He took what was already happening and firmly labeled it and put a lot of constraints on it when he coined the term Afrofuturism and then defined it like that. Yeah, and that's where um, there is some, uh, I guess, debate over whether or not it should be strictly limited uh, through the lens of African-Americans and the diaspora or just black culture worldwide as a whole. And, you know, we'll, I think at the end we'll talk about some of the some other more inclusive names that kind of encompass all, you know, kind of worldwide black culture. But um, there are people that kind of uh, are on both sides of the fence. And I, don't, I mean, I guess for me, you know, I just I just think it's all great. So um, nitpicking about, you know, the exact definition is not for me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um we have to point it out that, that it's out there and there is a debate. Yeah, and one of the big things is whether it's specifically African-American because there's a lot more black communities out there than just African-Americans. They're one of many. Um, you've got the entire continent of Africa and all of its various groups. You've got um, the diaspora, like you said, African-American descendants or African descendants living in 
Europe and Asia and all around the world. Then there's even like subtypes as well. Um, like the African-American diaspora is made up of people whose ancestors were enslaved in America. And then once they were free, moved out of America into Mexico, Canada, wherever. Um, so th there's a lot of different groups. And what Mark Derry did was situate it exclusively in the realm of African-Americans. That's a big that's a big point of debate still today. Uh, the other thing Womack points out in that uh, book, which, you know, is very easy for like a middle aged white guy to overlook is mm -hmm. the fact that these Afrofuturist themes are a way of uh, she talked about a method of self-liberation, self-healing. So, you know, to imagine a future for your race is a hopeful thing. So if you're in a hostile world, um, it's probably very easy to have a very bleak um, depiction of the future of your people. And these stories, like, they're sure it's science fiction, and, and it's, you know, science fiction is always just sort of uh, uh, not light. It's actually very heavy in a lot of cases, but mm -hmm. um, maybe not to be taken seriously by by some people. But, you know, I, I just I don't think it's like that. I think that it can offer very heavy commentaries and it can offer hope to people that like, hey, if we can write about ourselves in the future, that means we can imagine ourselves like thriving in the future. Yeah. And similarly, it's a way for um, African-Americans and uh, people of African descent in general to stake a claim of the future, too. Right. Because if you think about the future and I think um, Mark Derry made the point, like if you look at Tomorrowland, um, from at Disney World and Disneyland, it's super yeah. white. And the future in general is just white. It's like a projection of current times. And uh, Afrofuturism says, nope, there's a different way of looking at it too. And that this was the one that kind of triggered um, understanding for me. The distinction between Afrofuturism and just um, any other kind of, um, say, sci-fi that features like a black character Mm -hmm. Is that you're not just taking like a, an African American and making him or her them an astronaut in the structure of the current imagined future, which again is super white. Mm -hmm. The basis of Afrofuturism is completely reimagining the future, completely reimagining the past through a black lens. Kind of like if you, if black people were uh, in charge of producing the future, this is a vision of, of what it could be like kind of thing, yeah. rather than just following along the current trajectory that we've been on all this time in America, which is a super white trajectory that includes other people, but the basis of everything, the structure of everything is through the white lens. This is taking it through a black lens, and it's um, I saw it put as defamiliarizing what we think of as like the future. Oh, I like that term. Yeah, I thought so. I thought you would. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, there's one guy who we have to mention who is, um, you know, a complicated guy to say the least. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is one of the, the first sort of uh, 20th century um, Afrofuturist writers who is George Schuyler. And uh, he wrote uh, generally for um, black publications, but um, he wrote all these books. Uh, he wrote novels and essays and short stories and things. Uh, some sometimes there were pulp stories, and they were exactly what we've been talking about. There was one in the '30s, uh, these serialized pulp stories about uh, a global black uprising uh, against white colonialism. Uh, but he wrote these under pseudonyms, uh, the pseudonym Samuel I. Brooks, mm -hmm. and Schuyler himself 
in IRL um, would write essays kind of slamming stories that he wrote as Brooks. Uh, he wrote, he said it was hokum and hack work in the purest vein and was a very conservative guy in his real life and like backed uh, Joseph uh, McCarthy's uh, campaign against uh, uh, communists. And uh, he was sort of um, opponent of the civil rights movement. And it's just, man, I, I need to dive into this guy a little more and see that's some serious complication right there, you know? For sure, he is. But he wrote that uh, book, Black No More, where you uh, you could visit a machine, pay $50, and after three a three-day process, be turned from black to white. And it completely upends society and civilization, both in the white community and the black community. And he wrote that as George Schuyler, the conservative guy. Um, but he's he's considered one of the first progenitors of the um, of Afrofuturism in the 20th century. And then simultaneously, Chuck, um, as guys like Schuyler are writing and Samuel I. Brooks, who's the same guy, as they're writing Afrofuturism, a musical form of Afrofuturism is kind of developing too. And if you look back in the past, it was just a few people popping up and doing something that eventually, a couple decades later, you could say, all fall into the same general category. Yeah. I mean, these are all sort of in in the cases of Schuyler and uh, the the guys we're about to talk about is all these are all like retroactive titles. Right. Uh, because that term wasn't around back then. But you can't talk about Afrofuturism without talking about George Clinton and Sun Ra mm-hmm. uh, on the music side. And uh, I spent the basically all day listening to a Sun Ra playlist. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, you know. I have to be in the mood for this kind of jazz. Yeah. Um, it is, it's tough. It's very free form. Uh, it's very odd. And um, it, it's not like, you know, this very melodic, super listenable kind of thing. It's challenging music. And Sun Ra was a, a really interesting guy. Uh, he was born in Birmingham in 1914 as Herman Blount. And uh, he moved to Chicago in the 40s and played a little more traditional type jazz, but in the 60s, uh, he went to New York and things uh, really, he really freed himself up of what um, the idea of jazz or, or just composed music could be. Um, he was an out there cat in all the right ways. For sure. And he made more than 150 albums with his orchestra. And the whole premise of it was that um, he was essentially kind of like a the the prophet returned from Saturn to help lead um, humanity, if not just African-Americans, off of Earth because things like slavery had ruined Earth. And he had this whole mythos. This wasn't just like a, a concept album that he, he put. This was right. his whole it's career. Career, yeah. Yeah, for decades. This is how he lived. Um, and he he inspired a lot of people. And I'm with you. That kind of jazz is hard for me to, to listen to no matter who's playing it. But he had an album from 1957 that I think is super easy to listen to called Supersonic Jazz. And I think it's technically before, yeah, it's before he moved to New York and really set up the orchestra. But it's clearly Sun Ra, like you can can tell. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you want to try out Sun Ra and you've tried some of his later stuff and you're like, I'm not ready for this, listen to Supersonic Jazz, that album, first and see what you think. Yeah, that's good. Don't lead them down that... uh that that confusing uh so so confusing jazz <laughs> For sure. yeah much more accessible is george clinton in parliament funkadelic right 
Yeah, I, I'm a big fan. I always have been. Uh, I tend to lean more toward the Funkadelic records uh, than the Parliament, even though I love the Parliament stuff too. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is uh, someone I've seen a few times in uh, live, and I'm going to see him again next month. Where? Uh, at Symphony Hall, where we're performing. Oh, neat. <laughs> um, I, I just like to share the same stage. Not at the same time, obviously, but uh, just to be on the same stage that George Clinton will be on or had been on is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, we're not worthy, but um, <laughs> always a great show. Uh, his band is is awesome. I mean, it's all it's very space age. He used to have the mothership that would come down on the stage, uh, and he would enter the mothership. Um, all just a, it's a great sort of uh, feast for the eyes and ears. Hey, that reminds uh, me. Before you go on, I'm sorry to interrupt, but there, um, just coincidentally, the the main exhibit right now at the National Museum of African American History in D.C is Afrofuturism. Oh, cool. And one of the cool things they have on display is a replica of the UFO that George Clinton would come <laughs> on the stage in. Yeah, the mothership there? Yeah. Is it like life-size? Yes. Yeah, it's like <laughs> an exact replica because apparently oh, somebody wow. threw away the one that he used in the 70s. And in the 90s, oh, when they gosh. started touring again, they made a replica. And I think that's the exact one that's in the Smithsonian. Yeah, I, well, the first time I saw him was when he started up again, and he was on that uh, Lollapalooza tour, mm-hmm. uh, and he played a show. I saw him at the Lollapalooza, but I saw him the night before at the Center Stage Theater. Hey, we have also played there, actually. Man, we're Us just George following Clinton. George Clinton all <laughs> over the place. But uh, he did the show at the Center Stage, and, you know, he was getting up there in age at the time back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine when I see him next month, like, he's an older guy now, but... He was he was still getting down back then, and uh, he had the uh, the Beastie Boys came out at the end, and because they were playing Lollapalooza, and wow. it was sort of like this all star thing, and sweet, it was pretty great. But um, Clinton was a kid who listened, I'm sorry, who watched Star Trek and Buck Rogers, and was into sci fi, and it was just again, it was one of those things where he didn't see any representation; he just knew what he liked. Right. Uh, apparently took acid later on and watched 2001 Space Odyssey mm-hmm. and Fantasia when he took LSD for the first time. And that, you know, had some pretty profound impacts. So one of the things that um, I didn't realize, because, you know, we're living in the post-Parliament era, but one of the things that Parliament did was unite a generally fractured black community uh, after the MLK assassination, apparently um there was a lot of just fracturing in in the black community. And um, a few years later, George Clinton came along and kind of tried to bring people together by by throwing a party for 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 the African-American community in the United States and the Mm -hmm. world, really. And so the whole whole premise was that George Clinton and the rest of the uh, P-Funk All-Stars, who include like Bernie Worrell or Bernie Worrell and um, Bootsy Collins, they were aliens who'd come to Earth to teach everybody how to party. Yeah. They were, uh, this is a quote, Afronauts capable of funketizing galaxies. Yeah, man. It's so cool. Want to quickly mention um, local uh, Atlanta guy, Lonnie Holly as well. Lonnie, uh, you remember Matt Arnett, Mm -hmm. uh, our friend who, uh, well, we know Matt through a lot of different ways here in Atlanta, but big supporter of the arts, and Matt is Lonnie's, um, kind of uh, friend, and I guess I guess he's his tour manager and manager. But uh, Lonnie Holly is a, is a modern um, representation of sort of what Afrofuturism is, and still plays these small shows. And his stuff is really, really good. And, oh yeah. 
just soulful and like uh, intense and weird. Um, it's really cool. Yeah, it's super cool. I've never heard his stuff, but I'm going to check it out now. Yeah, if you can see him live, because that's when it gets really kind of uh, awesome. Well, take me to a show. I, well, he doesn't play a lot. I just saw he played in New York recently because Michael Stipe, of course, was there. You can fly um, but, me up to New York. What's your problem? <laughs> I saw Matt in in court the other day, so uh, <laughs> we were only able to text from across the courtroom. <laughs> Is there, there's got to be a story there. Uh, we were both fighting the man. You know, we were both right, and uh-huh. uh, basically just the bureaucracy of Atlanta had uh, kept us down and fined us for wow. various things. Hashtag hero. Yeah, I can get into it later, but okay. both of us were like, this is such BS. So, um, yeah, so the whole uh, parliament um, mythos that kind of developed, mm-hmm. it actually did help bring people together quite a bit. And it, it was just kind of a point where not just black people, but white people and people of all color who were into funk could really just come together and agree on that, which is like if you if you just kind of look at it like that, it's like yeah, they they had a band and a lot of people like them, but but if you just kind of scratch just one level down, that's really significant to to make something on purpose to purposefully bring people together, and not to mm-hmm. talk about problems, not to um, hammer issues out or anything like that, but just to kind of give everybody a place to kind of breathe and chill together and get away from the rest of the issues and just kind of come together. That's what Parliament did, and I think that's pretty neat. And they're not the only group that ever did that, but it seems sure. that George Clinton's express purpose was doing that, from what I from what I can tell. Yeah, and he put his own like cool uh, psychedelic futuristic spin on it, you know. And another, um, just real quick aside thing, another a musician that's often overlooked but sometimes cited as Afrofuturist is Lee Scratch Perry, who oh, yeah. created dub reggae. Mm-hmm. And he did do some kind of far out stuff. He was a far out dude, apparently. Um, but it, it, like just his music alone has like this spacey vibe to it that it, you just you're overlooking it if you don't include it in Afrofuturism. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we have to talk about art a little bit. Uh, I mean, all of this is art, obviously. But uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, uh, one of the great uh, artists in, in our history here in North America, he is one of the first Afrofuturists of in the fine art world, and uh, he was a guy that was was listening to Funkadelic in Parliament and groups like that. Mm-hmm. And hip hop culture informed his art. Uh, there was this uh, graffiti artist and and more named uh, Ramelzy who I looked into this guy. Man, I, I had never heard of him. He died in 2010, but he was a, a sculptor and a writer and a performance artist and mm-hmm. graffiti artist. And his stuff looks really really cool and. He was he was definitely he, one of these guys that was, you know, dressing up as like this futuristic shogun. He was blending cultures and genres and uh, Basquiat was buddies with him. So all these people were doing this stuff. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to seek fame and fortune as a graffiti artist who dresses up like a futuristic samurai. Right. Um, they were doing this stuff because it was like what moved them. And it stands out because there weren't a lot of black people doing this kind of thing. Right. That's the that's the initiation of a movement. That's where it yeah. starts, right? Totally. Um, Octavia Butler is also. I mean, she was a, a hallmark, a founder of Black science fiction writing and also Afrofuturism. But just like you were talking about Ramelzy and Basquiat, like she wasn't trying to 
create like a place for for black people to write in science fiction. This was just what she did to escape her own life and her own self-consciousness. She wrote sci-fi stories like that's where she went and she was really good at it. Um, There's a really great um, kind of biography on her called The Spectacular Life of Octavia Butler that was in Vulture that's worth reading. It really dives into her her life and her career. She was a really exceptional person, um, but she just kind of started slow, uh, was very much underpaid and overlooked and just kept at it and kept at it. And finally, in the 90s, people really started to recognize her and went back and looked at some of her past work and said, this this writer's pretty amazing. Yeah, she was the first sci-fi writer to get a, a MacArthur Genius Grant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a TV show last year or the year before from her book, Kindred. Yeah. From 1979, which I wasn't, I didn't see it. I saw that FX canceled it after one season, but that was about, it, the premise looked really cool. Uh, it was about a modern black woman who time travels uh, to meet her and the people who enslaved her. And um, I remember seeing the trailers and stuff at the time. And I was like, this looks really good. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize that it was an Octavia Butler book. So I just learned that like today or yesterday. Yeah, that was just one book, Kindred. She also had... Um a series called the uh, Xenogenesis series from the 80s. Parable of the Sower was the beginning of a, a series that she wrote, and I think it came out in 1993, and that was the one that got everybody's attention. And then they went back and were like, oh, good, this lady has a whole canon that we get to read now. Um, but yeah, she was she was pretty neat. I strongly recommend going and reading The Spectacular Life of Octavia Butler. Yeah. Uh, should we take another break? Yes. Okay, we'll take another break. We'll talk about kind of where things stands now and also just talk about a lot of other great artists right after this. Hey everyone, host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and Abvi. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they take action to understand the disease. That's right. Recognizing how a migraine attack can change the course of your day, she unpacks each guest's journey and how they talk to their doctors to find the treatment plans that are right for them. Yep, along with headache specialist Dr. Christopher Ryan and other special guests, Nora speaks to these incredible people who've channeled their feelings of isolation in their chronic migraine journey into advocacy and art. Plus, there are also eight episodes of their first season available for you to binge. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start embracing the journey as they learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Hey there, are you thirsty? Well, before you take a sip, have you stopped to think about what's in your water? Many conventional bottled waters contain PFAS, harmful substances known as forever chemicals. But you can drink water as clean as nature intended. Richard's rainwater collects 100% pure, refreshing drops of rain. Yes, it really is rain, everybody. This rain is caught clean before it hits the ground or becomes polluted with pesticides and contaminants commonly found in groundwater. Yep, Richard's rainwater is naturally pure with no need for harsh chemicals or additives. That means no added fluoride, no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. 
and you can enjoy the clean taste of Richard's still rainwater and the long-lasting cold-pressured bubbles of Richard's sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And we even have a special offer, don't we, Josh? Yeah, text STUFF to 2512-928887, and you'll get $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's rainwater. Sip the sky. You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, as everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members. And we think they've appreciated it, too. Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise. That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter. Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. So, Chuck, things really started to change where Afrofuturism went from this cool thing that kind of existed sporadically into being defined by a white journalist in the mid-90s into mm -hmm. becoming mainstream uh, starting in the, the late 90s. Thanks in large part, and I didn't really realize this until you said it, to Will Smith getting yeah. roles like Men in Black, um, uh -huh. Independence Day, uh, I Am Legend. Like just yeah, yeah, tons I of remember the he, name. He, he's been in tons of sci-fi movies. I never really realized it before, um, but he was a huge kind of uh, glass ceiling breaker for African-Americans in sci-fi, because up to that point, it was like if you saw a black person in a sci-fi movie or a horror movie, yeah, that you just knew that they were one of the first ones to die. That's just like this longstanding kind of um, trope. Yeah, yeah. And and it started to change in the 90s where they're like, oh, actually, we can use a, a black protagonist and, and they can actually carry the movie. At least if you get Will Smith in there, who else can we give a chance to? <laughs> uh, Wesley Snipes. Yeah. He was in Blade. Yeah. Uh, the Matrix, of course, featured um, not in the lead, but they featured, you know, people of color in their trilogy. Uh, I think more and more in the second and third movies even. Uh, and then, you know, today I was like, is Jordan Peele an Afrofuturist filmmaker? And I read some stuff and like he's he dabbles in it. It's um, I don't it's not like straight up Afrofuturism, mm -hmm. 
in the traditional sense that you might think of, but there are certainly elements of it in everything he's done, yeah, uh, especially this this last one in Nope. That was so um, cool. Yeah, I mean, no spoilers there, but that movie was not the movie I thought it was. It was way more sci-fi and <laughs> yeah, way less horror. For sure. But I think he's kind of, you know, carrying that torch along in his own way, in a way that's um, kind of dabbles in Afrofuturism that, that is way more mainstream, which is a valuable thing, you know? Yes, that is a great example of what I was talking about earlier, where I didn't really realize, I'd heard the term Afrofuturism before, obviously, but I'd never really looked into it until we started researching this. But when I did, I realized, like, it, it just pops up all over the place. And that's a really good example of it, is Jordan Peele's movies. Like, yeah. they, they, they're not necessarily, like, the whole point is Afrofuturism. Uh, it's just, it just shows up. It's like an influence. Mm-hmm. It's a part of the whole, the whole thing. And there's, a, yeah. um, Colson Whitehead's another good example of that, too. He is, like, one of the um, gleaming uh, beacons of literature right now. And in his very realistic novels, fantastic stuff can happen. And that's uh, that's Afrofuturism popping its head up as well. Again, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the future, but it falls under speculative fiction or speculative literature in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, I guess we can talk about music a little more. Yeah, let's. Because, uh, again, it, just like in movies in the late 90s, things, even starting in the early mid-90s, things really started to take an Afrofuturistic turn in, in music. Yeah, and by way of hip-hop, um, if you look at the history of hip-hop, the DNA of Afrofuturism is is kind of woven throughout it. Uh, you know, earlier groups, uh, groups that I really like, like Diggable Planets, and I don't know if you ever listened to any Cool Keith stuff, mm-hmm. but Cool Keith had a character uh, in a concept album he did called Dr. Octagon mm-hmm. uh, that was very weird and awesome. Um, I won't give away what it's about. It's kind of weird. He's a, he's a time traveling gynecologist. Right. Uh, so I guess I did kind of give it away, but it's really good. Um, Wu-Tang and of course, specifically, uh, RZA with Bobby Digital. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was looking at, you know, like Beyonce uses kind of Afro-futuristic aesthetics in a lot of her videos mm-hmm. and stage shows, mm-hmm. uh, and Solange does too, but, um, when I was kind of reading about them and Janelle Monet, who's certainly uh, really represents Afro Afrofuturism, I I could I was like Missy Elliott, like yeah. why aren't we talking about Missy Elliott? Because she was before all of them and was could really get out there as far as you know talking about riding around in spaceships and stuff. Yeah, and all of her videos are super Afrofuturistic. Even when she's yeah. just sitting there in front of the camera, like like rapping, like. She's she's doing weird stuff or she's in outer space or she's in uh, virtual reality or something like that. Yeah, she's definitely at least influenced, if not an influencer of Afrofuturism. Another yeah. one I saw that I hadn't considered, but I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. Diggable Planets, especially their first album. Yeah. They were from outer space. They were uh, uh-huh. insects from outer space uh, yeah. who'd come to help the world out. And I just never thought about that before. Yeah, they, that's all that... Uh... Well, I got a side story I'll tell you off air, but th- I saw them in college mm-hmm. in Athens. And then. And you saw them uh, in court last week. And then the only other time I saw them was on their reunion tour a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. Cool. So it was a big break in between, but it was great. But um, their second album, I think, was uh, really awesome. And it wasn't Afro futuristic. No, it, but it is one of the greatest albums of all time. So good. All right. Well, we can't talk about all of the people, but we'll talk about a couple of more because I wanted to mention. 
uh, John Jennings and Stacy Robinson, mm-hmm. who are uh, they're in the comic book world and they work under the name Black Kirby, um, which is obviously a riff on uh, the great comic book artist Jack Kirby. Uh, and they reimagine sort of Kirby stuff through the African-American lens and uh, things like the unkillable buck instead of the incredible Hulk <laughs> and stuff like that. It's really cool looking. Um, and then they are, I think, influenced by one of the first um, African-American comic book uh, writers was uh, Larry Fuller in the late 60s. Hmm. Uh, he created a character named Ebon, mm-hmm. E-B-O-N, which um, – think was the first black superhero or at least among the first yeah i saw one of the black kirby characters is major sankofa or sankofa Uh i'm not quite sure how you say it but it's sankofa is like a um it means like the spirit of going looking backward into the past and taking what's good there and take moving it into the future and it it was major sankofa instead of captain america and it's uh it's just cool i like that whole concept for sure yeah and if we're going to talk comics we have to uh, shout out Stanley and Jack Kirby because they created Black Panther, and that is sort of uh, maybe the the biggest, most mainstream example of Afrofuturism on the big screen uh, that we've ever seen. These Black Panther movies are huge; they're wildly successful, mm-hmm. they're award winning, mm-hmm. and they are Afrofuturistic like to a T. Yeah, and apparently we have um, Chadwick Boseman to thank for. Um, keeping all of the African characters from having British accents. Yeah, man. Can you what imagine like colonization ahoy? Like all these people yeah. have British accents. So he insisted that they speak with a South African accent, not the British kind, but the Hosa. I did it. Um, that that dialect, that's the <laughs> accent they were speaking with, the Hosa. Hosa. Yeah, I did it. I got it three that times That one was there. pretty good, Thanks. but I think it's Hasa. Nope. Oh, it's not? Not anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, Trevor Noah says it different. It's a hard thing to do. It's that uh, the uh, Zulu, uh, you know, I click language for lack of a better term, but it's um, it's hard to do it because you have to click at the same time that you're saying something. Yeah. It's it, 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 I practiced it earlier and I was like, I can't do it. So um, I wasn't going to try, but hats off to you, sir. So, Hasa, Hasa, Hasa. <laughs> That's how Trevor Noah said it. Okay. And of course, he was on this. Um, oh, never mind. Well, he's from South up. Africa, so I'll bit. defer to him. Yeah. Um, so, where are we now with Afrofuturism? Um, we are in a better place than we've ever been as far as just more and more stuff. It's becoming more mainstream, um, not as just sort of uh, different and other than it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is where we've gotten to the point where people start to drill down on the term. Um, some people say, uh, like, you know, is it, is it just too broad of a thing, uh, to call sort of all this stuff Afro, uh, Afro, man, I keep messing that up. Afro futurism. Mm-hmm. Um, when it, it, you know, there are people, like I said at the beginning that said, no, it should always, I, I believe his name was, uh, he's a science fiction fantasy writer, uh, Nigerian American name, uh, Tochi Anyabuchi, mm-hmm. um, said this should always be addressing or at least allegorizing black suffering. Uh, otherwise, it shouldn't count. Uh, and so people have formed other words like um, uh, astro blackness. That's a pretty cool one. Yeah. Ethno gothic. That one's neat. Yeah, I like that one too. Uh, the black fantastic, uh, magical realism. Um, there's another uh, another Nigerian American science fiction writer named uh, Indy uh, Okorafor. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Mm-hmm. Um, and she coined the term uh, African futurist. 
and was like, you know, these these um, African-American stories are great, but like I also like to tell the stories through the lens of, you know, Africans. And so African futurism is uh, rooted in all these cultures. Yeah. Uh, African futurist and African jujuist for fantasy kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, that was that debate I was talking about earlier. Is like, is it just through the lens of African Americans or what? Um, yeah. Yeah. So we, you said it. Uh, it's gone mainstream. We've reached the point where it's becoming so mainstream that it's just part of pop culture. It's not like a separate, tangential, or additional part of pop culture. It's infused into pop culture. And so you get to the point where you're like, do you even need a name for this anymore? Is it just, right. it is what it is. And if that's the case, then then people like um, Samuel Delaney and all the people who came before him, Octavia Butler, um, mm-hmm. Sun Ra, George Clinton, were fully successful. Even if they didn't intend to, to, to create something like that, um, they, they were still successful in, in their own way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think it's so mainstream now. There are, uh, for sure, studio executives that are like, we need a black people in space thing. Netflix has theirs. Why don't we have ours? That's exactly right. And that means mainstream. Yep. That means that everybody needs to figure out a new artistic path to blaze. That's right. And I don't feel bad making fun of the studio execs because they are... They don't want to pay their artists fair wages, and that's why the writers are on strike. Uh, just real quick, a couple more people. Manzel Bowman uh, is a uh, graphic designer who does amazing stuff. Uh, Lena Iris Victor, an amazing painter. Kamasi Washington, kind of carrying on the vibe of Sun Ra, but way, way more melodic. Um, and then, like you said, Janelle Monet, she's the poster child of Afrofuturism right now with her concept album, Dirty Computer, and a book set in the same world, Memory Librarian. She's just totally going nuts on it. And um, That's right. Yumi, by the way, just loves her, has a crush on her, she said. Well, she I was just about to say, she's also my celebrity crush, so yeah. Yumi and I share that, she's I guess. pretty great. <laughs> yeah, it's hard not to. I got to keep you and Yumi and Janelle Monet out of the same room. <laughs> Oh, that's good. That Dirty Computer, man. What a great record. Yeah. And I'm going to see Beyonce later this year. And I've I've never been to a big uh, pop show like that in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I like having, you know, I'm not even, I, I'm not even the hugest Beyonce fan just because it's not something I listen to much. But I was like, you know, what? I want to go to one of these big pop shows. Mm-hmm. And like, who else should I go to? I'm not going to go see Taylor Swift. I'll go to Beyonce. Oh, nice. Well, I mean, I'm sure the Taylor Swift show was great, too, but yeah, Beyonce's looks like, I don't know, more at my speed. Taylor Swift, her show, like this tour is apparently three hours long. Yeah, it's it's supposed to be amazing. My mom went, actually. She got free tickets to a friend. Oh, yeah. And uh, doesn't go to stuff like that and uh, like con- big concerts and stuff and isn't even a big Taylor Swift person. And she was just like, it was so great. Well, <laughs> I think we all knew at the beginning of this episode that there was a 100% <laughs> chance Taylor Swift was going to come up. Oh, I saw that coming. Uh, well, if you want to know more about Afrofuturism, you can do a lot worse than go on to Instagram and search for that hashtag and start looking. Uh, just look all over the internet and you will find a whole new world of pretty cool stuff, including some stuff you already knew about but never really thought about. Okay? Agreed. Uh, since Chuck said agreed, it's time for listener mail. Okay, I'm going to call this brown fat. Oh, yeah. Delicious. Yeah, we talked about that in our, uh, oh gosh, why am I blanking now? I think it was our intermittent fasting episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought it was our Taylor Swift episode. (laughs) 
hey guys, just finished uh, listening to Intermittent Fasting and was so excited when brown fat was mentioned. Uh, I learned about brown fat this past year in school in my biochemistry class, mm-hmm. and it's more amazing than what Josh was even guessing in the episode. You were guessing. No, I was you were, speaking. You were speaking some facts. Uh, brown fat's main biological purpose is to release heat to keep the body temperature stable. I think I said that, actually. Uh, to do this, it actually breaks down white fat in a way that allows for more heat to be released per fat molecule yeah. burned than if regular cells were breaking down the white fat. Uh, because this helps keep body temperature stable, uh, people who live in cold environments adapt to living there by having more brand, uh, brown fat cells hmm. than people who do not. Uh, babies are also born with high brown fat levels and keeps them uh, helps them adapt to life outside the womb for the first few days. I uh, just really want to thank you guys for everything you've done for me over the years. Started listening in 2018 in high school. Just graduated with my bachelor's in chemical engineering from the University of Tennessee. Oh, congratulations. Who's that? Uh, go Vols. And that is from uh, Sarah Batten. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you very much. And thanks to Brown Fat, too, for being so great that Sarah wrote a <laughs> listener mail about it. Yeah. I mean, that's a band name. I don't even think I recognized it at the time as such. Brown Fat. Yeah. Like one of those albums where the name of the band, the first song, and the album are all the same. <laughs> you know? I can't think of yeah, one yeah. right now, but it's definitely out there. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, this whole conversation's petered out, so if you want to get in touch with us and let us know you graduated college, we say congratulations in advance. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 